don't think I've ever said cowboy up before. <laughs> <laughs> Holy ghost. Holy ghost. Today is Friday, February 1st, 2019. Time for episode 74 of the Barnhart Podcast. Last time we brought this topic up was many episodes ago. We recorded this in August 2018. It was the what we ended up calling the uh, part one of Anne's spiritual journey. And uh, we did get some interesting questions and feedback from that. And it was time to record another In the Can episode for future contingencies so that um, when you're hearing this, there's something going on and or maybe we just needed to fill the time. I don't know what. But, uh, Anne, any, any other comments or feedback that you got that you wanted to address from that? Well, like you said, it's been a while ago now. Um, there was quite a bit of feedback. I don't remember anything. I don't remember anything particularly negative. Um, just and I remember there were several emails that said, you know, looking forward to to the rest of the story and all that. So I'm glad we're doing this. Well, when we last left off. Um, aside from going from high pitch to, uh, energy in the afternoon of August, 2018 to low pitch and six in the morning, uh, <laughs> when I had to record that, which, um, people may have heard recently. Anyway, um, we had left off. You had just, uh, become Catholic, uh, and it, to, to recap that conversion, I, I remember I had asked the question when, what, what preceded or precipitated the, the point in your mind where you said, I've got to become Catholic. And you said there was no one thing per se that led to it. You mentioned the orthodontist who kept giving you books. And I remember reading in on your blog, you said that you essentially read yourself into the church. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so you had a massive collection of books that you purchased and read through. And those are in South Denver now for people who want to find them. Um, How has reading how did reading help advance you once you got into the church? Oh, well, it just kept going and going. I mean, there's there's no end to it. That's the thing about it, and that's the thing when you you know, there's oh, I don't want to I don't want to sound completely conceited, but people will make note that throughout history and throughout the years, there've been a lot of intelligent people who convert to Catholicism. And one of the things that that when when you have a more intellectually driven conversion is when you realize that there is literally no end to it and the deeper you go the better it gets usually you know when you are in some sort of a paradigm you kind of get to a point and you exhaust it and then it's oh now it's time to move on to something else and with Catholicism, that just is not the case at all, because it is literally an infinite set because it's it's God at the end of the day, you know. Um, so it, it just keeps going and going and going and going. And the deeper you go, the better it gets. And you just keep reading and reading and reading and reading. So, yeah, I, I absolutely had an intellectual conversion. And I don't know if I mentioned this in the last episode. I can't even remember. I should have I should have not been lazy and I should have re-listened to it. But, um, but this is a good, you know, heads up or warning for people who might enter the church and might have to do what I did or 
might find themselves or have gone through the same thing and have gone, entered into the church as I did through the Novus Ordo, through our CIA, I remember them explicitly telling us that intellectual, you know, they were anti-intellectual. They were, they were vociferously anti-intellectual. I remember asking to have the, the different rights and scrutinies explain, you know, tell us what's going to happen. Tell us what, you know, tell us what this right is going to entail that we're going through next Sunday morning. And they, they refused, they refused. They said, no, we just want you to experience it in the moment. We just want you to feel what you feel in the moment. And there was, there was a lot of other stuff that, and, and again, I don't want to make it sound like that this RCIA program was horrible because it for for RCIA and for Novus Ordo Parish, it was probably one of if nah, it's one of the most conservative Novus Ordo parishes and most conservative RCIA programs in the Archdiocese of Denver, which is one of the most conservative archdioceses in the country. But still, it's so the Novus Ordo in and of itself is so lacking. And, you know, it, it was anti-intellectual. And a lot of the people who were in the RCIA class with me were people who were getting married to a Catholic and were clearly just doing it, were just converting to make the the fiancé's family happy or make the fiancé happy. Um, there were a, there were some older couples who were converting in. There were two. There was one really nice couple that was a refugee from you know the Episcopal Church, which they described as you know the earth split open and the Episcopal Church fell in, and now here we are because there's you know there's nowhere else to go. You can't be Episcopalian anymore because they're just they're they're so far gone. You we can't even go there in good conscience anymore. So here we are. Um, but mostly it was kind of, and I, I think I told the story and I'll retell it again because it just, oh, it just encapsulates everything. The year after I was received into the church, I went to the Easter vigil at the Novus Ordo Parish and I, th- and I read, I was one of the lectors, of course, um, and the, the priest opened the homily. Okay, he's just baptized everybody. He's just confirmed everybody. Now it's time for the homily. He opens the homily by looking over at all of the people that have just been received into the church and says, I want to offer an especially warm welcome to all of our catechumens and candidates who have now been joyfully received into the church because we know we'll probably never see most of you at mass ever again. And the whole church erupted in laughter. And I mean... Yeah, that's when I knew that was that was a really, really big moment when it it was telling me there's something there's something really, really wrong here. And so you've mentioned the topic many times on the podcast and on the blog, you know, raising the question, do they actually believe any of this stuff? And this is a priest who just received people into the Catholic Church. You just you just gave them the opportunity for eternal life and you're making a joke of it as soon as it happened saying, yeah, we know you were faking it and we weren't really taking it seriously either. And we're not taking it seriously either. I mean, that's the thing about it. Did anybody tell these people before they're baptized and confirmed and received into the church that by the way, now for the rest of your life, if you don't go to mass on Sunday, that's a mortal sin because you know, this is this is a commandment. This is in the Decalogue. And the absolute least that you owe to God is to go to Mass on Sunday. And instead, we're making jokes literally minutes after they've entered the church about the fact that 
a lot of them will probably never see them at mass ever again. I mean, it's just, you just shake your head. And at that point I had already found the trad mass because, okay, so here the question, the question comes up, how, how did you trad? Okay. So let me, let me think about the well, timeline. Actually, before you get to that there, I did have another intermediate question. Okay. And sure. I mentioned on the last podcast that a very wise friend of mine had mentioned that when somebody who is in the process of converting decides, makes the act of will, I am going to become Catholic, that Satan, Satan gets pissed off and he's going to you know, mm-hmm. open all guns at you at that point and try to do his best to dissuade you and think that everything going wrong in your life is because you decided to become Catholic and try to make you think, maybe I shouldn't do that. I also have heard that if you persevere and you become Catholic, there will be a false sense of security. Satan will sit back and wait. And so he will try to allow you to think that, hey, everything's calm, everything's awesome, and this could be a few months, it could be a few weeks, it just depends on the person, to the point that you think, hey, this is awesome, I've got it made, but the sense of security is the fact that you're not being attacked and there will be an intentional lull to get you to drop your defenses. And once you have become complacent and have your defenses down, Satan is back and he's going to hit you harder than he ever did before. And the whole point is now you're a baptized Catholic. You've got that mark on your soul for eternity. Mm -hmm. You're a bigger prize when you get to hell. Yeah. Did you experience something like that where, where the, the hurricane came back four times stronger? Well, the hurricane came, but it didn't it didn't shake my faith at all. Um, and in fact, it was kind of in the back of my head because I remember I remember I went to some it must have been some dinner that they had for the next class of RCIA. So I'm received into the church um, April 7, 2007. And I'm thinking maybe something in like the, the fall of 2007, I get invited to go to a dinner where the next class of people is there. And forgive me if I'm forgetting this timeline, but I went to this dinner and I remember the, the priest, yeah, it, it had to have been that because the priest asked me, you know, he called, he was calling around and asking for different people to make very brief remarks at this dinner. And he I, rem- I remember he said, well, let's hear from a lady now, Anne. And I got up and I made the joke, hey, I ain't no lady. And everybody laughed and da, da, da. And, but then I, my remarks to the people there were, you know, I, I said this. I said, once you get in, and I didn't frame it in terms of, you know, Satan. I, I framed it in terms of our Lord. Once you're in and our Lord has you, you know, in, in his, in his embrace and in his holy church. Um, don't be surprised if, if you get put through the meat grinder, um, because, you know, he's got you and now you can be, you can be this, this vessel, this vector for tremendous good. Um, and, and a lot of the ways that, that, fallen man advances in the spiritual life is necessarily getting put through that holy meat grinder. So don't be surprised. I even made remarks to that, but I didn't frame it in terms of, I framed it the other way, you know, that, that it's a good, that a lot of times it's a good thing. See, I've, I've always viewed these things. I've always, um, there's not 
been with me ever much shaking my fist at God. Uh, this is kind of not a terribly intelligent or self-aware thing to do. Just don't do that. Um, things happen and you think, well, you know, blah, thank goodness that, that I'm in the church and thank goodness that I have the sacraments and thank goodness that, you know, I have the rosary and I have a way to process all of this and thank goodness that I can now kind of step outside of whatever bad things are happening and look at this and calmly say, all right, what's, what is going on here? What, what needs to happen? What do I need to do? What is this telling me? I mean, I'm not saying that I've never, I've never gotten upset or anything like that. I mean, sure I have, sure I have, but, um, no, you're boy, the absolute picture of calm in all circumstances. Uh, no, but I mean, upset in the sense of, you know, just like having hysteric hysterics and all that. I, no, oh, I don't, I don't do that at all. That is not, that is not my jam. That is not my groove. I'm in fact, I'm, th- that's one of the, the traits that I have is when, when situations go sideways is that I get really calm and I can, you know, that I don't know if you've ever been a car accident and like time slows down and you can, you can like take in all the information around you and process it. And then like, while you're in the midst of being in a car wreck and you can steer the car and things like that, that sense of time slowing down and calm and keeping your wits about you when, situations go haywire. Um, and I'm not, I'm not a big, I'm going to go, go in my room and slam the door and sob. I mean, that's just, just a waste of time. It just doesn't do anybody any good. And, and if there's other people around, you're just, you're making a fool out of yourself. I just, I've never been about that. You know, call me, call me whatever, call me cold hearted, but I mean, just have a practical mind that way. Don't, don't waste your own time. Don't waste other people's time and, you know, have a sense of the big picture and understand that the divine providence is always at work and God can make good come out of bad things and things that you perceive to be bad in real time can within fairly short order. I mean, and sometimes it takes years for the retrospect thing to work, but sometimes it's really quick. Something that you think is absolutely terrible right now in the moment, you can be within a matter of of days or weeks looking back and saying, oh, wow, okay, thank goodness that happened because then that enabled this and that facilitated that and da, 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 da. So I don't know. It's never, I've, I've not, no shaking the fist at God or anything like that. Just gra- grateful to be in and seeing the the providential nature of the timing of getting me into the church and then the timing of getting me tratted so fast. And that, that um, I'm received into the church April 7th, 2007. And then the motu proprio, um, Samorum Pontificum, was promulgated in July or it was promulgated in July and then it went into effect in September of 2007. So literally within weeks of my entering the church, here comes Smorm Pontificum. So what happened is that 
you know, just flipping around. And at the time I still had television. So I, you know, EWTN was on eh, quite a bit. I watched the journey home. I watched the journey home every Monday for years and years. That was my favorite show. Um, but you know, I see on EWTN, I hear this thing that there, there's been this document and the, the old Latin mass, something, something, something. And I didn't, I didn't know much about it. I knew there had been a change and I knew there was an old mass, but I didn't know anything about it. And I knew it was, <laughs> I, I, I even admit, I admit that I knew th- that the old mass, the priest had his back to the people. That's how I thought of it. And so I thought to myself, and EWTN was saying, okay, on September, whatever the date is in September, when it goes into effect, September we're 14th, gonna sh- it was the Sept- uh, fe- feast of the Holy Cross. There you go. Thank you very much. September 14th at 4.30 PM on EWTN, we are going to show a a film that was taken of an old high mass, I believe it was an Easter mass, that was taken in um, the Basilica of Our Lady of Sorrows, I want to say, in Chicago, on the on the near west side of Chicago, which I have been to. It is, it's the church, if you ever watch the movie um, with Sean Connery and Kevin Costner about Al Capone um, and Elliot Ness, The Untouchables. If I'm not mistaken, fam- that's the same church where the, uh, Saint, the Society of St. John the Cantius uh, does mass as well. Um, when I was there, it was very sad. It was um, Paulus, and it was oh, it was bad. It was so bad. I mean, it, I went to a Sunday mass there one time when I went to Chicago, and um, I went to the eight thirty a.m. mass, and it was me and a friend who went with me, and five elderly black women. I mean, in, that was it in the entire church. This is a massive basilica massive basilica on a Sunday morning. Um, it was, it was really sad, but, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's that church when, you know, the, the famous scene, if, if they bring a knife, you bring a gun. If they put one of yours in the hospital, you put one, you, you put one of theirs in the morgue, that scene that's in that church. So, I'm very keen to see this old motion picture of this mass. And I said, I'm going to make sure that I'm at home and I'm going to have EWTN on and I'm going to watch this thing because I want to see what this whole priest with his back to the people and this old mass, I want to see what this looks like. So I, I remember very clearly sitting down watching this thing and I sat there and watched that and it was the strangest sensation of rec- of recognition, of recognizing it. Because in the sense, I recognized it in the sense of having read, you know, the old, having read the entire Bible four times, but that means you've read all of the, all of the Old Testament liturgical stuff that's in, that's in the Torah and, and so on and so forth. And you see the old mass and suddenly all of that stuff makes perfect sense. You're like, well, that's. That's the that's the the sacrifice that that's being offered in these in the Old Testament. That's exactly what that is. Oh, except the sacrifice is Jesus and not. But you see, even though I I had intellectually read my way in and understood that, I don't know how to explain it. That it it didn't click. You know, it didn't click in that in that this overly used word now, very concrete way where you understand, oh, 
okay, the altar isn't a table for people to sit around and eat. It's the, it's where the, the, the lamb was sacrificed and where, you know, the blood was touched to the, the corners and all. Okay. And I mean, it just, ding, everything just, well, fell right into place. And so it was like, okay, I have to find, where is this in Denver? So I called, I called the, the chancery or emailed, I think I emailed and, you know, got some, uh, email back saying, well, the only, the only place that does that is the fraternity of St. Peter parish. And that's where you need to go for that. That's the only place it exists in the archdiocese. And I was like, well, okay, that's where I have to go then. And I have to see this thing. Okay. Um, I've got to interject something because not that far off in time, my wife and I were in Denver as part of our honeymoon and we were at the St. Francis Xavier Cabrini shrine up on the mountain there. Mm. Was it golden or some? It's on the West side of Denver. It's all yeah, I, yeah. I remember with, mm-hmm. with precision. And they had some event going on upstairs. And, and, uh, I was asking somebody, uh, a guy at the gift shop and, and he says, oh, let me ask my wife. Um, and, and, and he, and he you know, I guess his wife worked there. He, his wife was Roman Catholic. He was Eastern Orthodox. And so he said, I guess he, by marriage, he's Catholic, but anyway, and and eventually he came back and said, oh, it's a Vietnamese group doing mass. And I said, well, how, how, how many different kinds of groups come through here to do mass? And he just started going off. A, it was like the United Nations translator's guide yeah. of all the different languages. And I said, well, did they ever do a Latin mass? And he said, well, hold on. Let me go find out. He came back a few minutes later and, and he said, well, I found the chapel in Sister Bernadette. And she said, there's two kinds of Catholics. There's Roman Catholics and there's plain Catholics. And I'm like, okay, that tells me nothing. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean with with regard to Latin mass? Like, well, Roman Catholics do the regular. I guess he was saying plain Catholics go to Latin mass, and he was trying to make the make the case that that people who go to the Latin mass aren't really in line with the Catholic Church. I said, that's funny. Your current archbishop authorizes the Latin mass in this diocese, and so the 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 whole idea of trying to find a Latin mass and nobody seems to know where it is or there's only one place. Yeah. It's like I was in that diocese at almost the same time. For different reasons, obviously, and mm-hmm. and uh, just the whole idea that nobody seems to know what's going on with the mass, and they have no connection with the past. It's like, well, we we hear that some people do Latin. I don't know if this is like a diversity thing or an inclusion or 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 something. I mean, but we hear that they do it. It's like this is what it's supposed to be. This is when you go back two thousand years, and it's building on another two thousand years of history before that. I was just mm-hmm. talking to a friend of mine at, at, at or I should say a coworker who's in the process of converting. And of course, she's going through RCIA, which I've heard referred to as Roman Catholics in agony. But no, she apparently she's going through a, a pretty decent program as well. And and uh, talking to her about the mass, and I said, "You realize this has four thousand years of history to it, right?" And she kind of looked at me with one eyebrow raised, and I said, "No, seriously, four thousand years. I mean, two thousand years yeah. ago was Christ. It's like, but another two thousand years before that was Moses. The whole sacrificing the lamb goes all the way back into the Old Testament into the Torah." that's what's happening at mass. And it's like this, she'd never heard of this. Yeah. So right. It, it, this, this is a complete mind blowing event for people to realize. And I hope, you know, I, I, I can do my best to try to plant seeds and the Holy ghost will water that and make fruit of it at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. If it's best for that person. But it, I, I couldn't help jumping in at this point of the story when you said you're emailing somebody saying, Hey, where, where do I find that traditional mass thing that they're talking about on EW, EWCN? And they say, well, there's only one place in Denver. 
I was in Denver at a similar time and nobody else seemed to know that it was even a yeah. thing. Yep. Well, and 10 years ago, I mean, before Smorm Pontificum, nobody had any idea. It was very much very ghettoized. And it there's been so much expansion and so much growth in, in the traditional mass over the last decade. There, I mean... <laughs> Wow, I'm just I'm just grateful for the timing and everything. Um, well, prior to but, ten years ago, you had to find somebody old to even know what that yeah. was. And going back, you know, to the early '90s, there was one point in time I wanted to join the Naval Academy, and to do that, you had to get um, a nomination from some uh, local representative who was a Naval Academy grad. And the whole topic of religion came up and Catholicism, and and Latin Mass. And this guy had made the made the point that. Long ago in his naval career, he he uh, they made a port call in Sweden, but he was able to go to mass and it was completely normal because the mass was in Latin. So obviously mm-hmm. this was before the asteroid hit. And mm-hmm. and so it's within living memory for some people, although it's starting to get a little more further away. But it's unfortunate now that you, you, Ooh, email yeah. and you, you ask around and, and nobody knows about this anymore. It used to be common. And that was the thing about the Latin mass. We have these stupid diversity programs of having the, the, the Spanish mass, the English mass, the, I don't know, French mass, the Vietnamese yeah. mass, this, yeah. that, another thing. How about Latin? That's the language we all should know. Yep. How stupid would it be if you talk to somebody who's a big opera fan? And I know we've got an awesome opera singer who listens to the podcast. To say, you know, opera is great and all, but, you know, this Latin and this German and this French and this Italian, that's not really good for spreading opera. Why don't we bring it to English? Because it sounds like (laughs) crap when you sing it in English. That's right. It's not meant to. It's supposed to be a lyric poem. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's no accident that languages like, like Greek and Latin and Hebrew are the languages of the church. Anyway, sorry, well, I, I sidetracked your whole your whole story there because I couldn't no, help no. jumping in. But but uh, you emailing to say where is the Latin Mass? I want to find it, and they told you. And it's no coincidence that you know after the asteroid hit and you go into the vernacular, it's it's the it's like the Tower of Babel again. It's it's kind of a curse because I keep trying to explain this to people. Do you realize that before 1960, the first Sunday of of Advent in 1969, you could go to Mass at in any Roman Rite, Latin Rite, Catholic Church anywhere in the world. So that is all of Western Europe. That is all of Latin America, all of North America, and everything in Asia, Australia, everything like that. Everything that isn't, you know, Byzantine greek catholic that's using church slavonic select underground locations behind the iron curtain yes indeed every other mass on earth you would walk into the church and it would be exactly your mass and everyone else there is praying exactly the same words you know you've you've got your presumably you've got your hand missiles or if you're not even using a missile and you just have you just have the the fixed parts of the mass memorized you are kneeling next to someone from a from the other side of a planet, a completely different culture. You don't speak mutually a single word between you, but you kneel down and you worship God and you say exactly the same words and you have exactly the same mass. I mean, how how blind do people have to be to not realize 
what a curse it is to then have it re-broken out into the, all of these vernacular languages and then to separate everybody so that, yeah, well, you know, the, the Spanish mass and you hear people, you hear parishes having difficulties between, you know, the Spanish mass people and the English mass people and the Korean mass people or whatever it is. And they're fighting over the use of the church and what time they get to have their mass. And it's just it's just pathetic. Why can why can you not see this? It's so glaringly obvious. Um, and so then, where were we going after that? So I oh the, the whole point of how you how you found the traditional mass, emailing the diocese and saying, hey, where do I find this extraordinary form mass? Yeah. Oh, and the other point I wanted to make is that you know I'm still um, at this point going like switching back and forth between the trad mass and then some Sundays going to the Novus Ordo parish. Cause I'm still kind of like involved with the RCIA and I'm talking to, you know, the, the older ladies that run the RCIA who are definitely within living memory of the old mass. You know, that's what they had when they were young. They, in fact, one of them was probably married in the old, right? Because they were, they were old enough. Um, and, Oh, they were just, oh, we're never going back to that. Oh, th- thank God that's that's over with. We're never going back to that. Like, uh, uh, well, I'm probably not going to be around here too much longer because th- when, you, when you go for the first time, the first time I went, the first mass that I went to, I had my nose in the missile. Don't do that. My advice to you is if you have never been to a Latin mass or if you're if you're talking to other people and you're telling them, do not, the first time you go, don't even bother trying to have your nose in the missile. Um, save that for the second Sunday. The first Sunday, just keep your keep your eyes up and watch. Just look at it. That's your that's your first Sunday. That's your first mass. Just watch and see. Then starting the, the next Sunday, you can you can get a friend to help you say, okay, I'd like to please show me, you know, just the simple version of how to use the missile. So basically, you're just going to put turn to the page with, you know, the propers of the Sunday. You're not even going to have them flip back and forth to um, to the fixed parts of the mass yet. Save that for the third Sunday. But the reason this is very important is because the first Sunday that I went to the trad mass, I missed the consecration and the elevation of the host um, because I had my nose in the missile and I didn't know exactly where we were. And so what I saw then the second Sunday that I went and I resolved that I was not going to have my nose in the missile, I was going to watch, is that I saw the consecration. And when I, when I saw the consecration, that was it man that was absolutely it when the priest put his elbows down on the altar and leaned down and whispered at the i was done that was okay this this is it and what they're doing at the nova sordo i mean it's valid it's valid but the, the meaning the intensity of the meaning of all of this is so deep and so profound and it must have been I don't know. It must have been a, a Holy Ghost sort of a thing because I don't, I don't know if I had ever up to that point explicitly read anything that was discussing the um, the nuptial motif of the mass at all. 
but I ran home and then started looking this up because, you know, you realize that the, the, the three motifs of the mass are nuptial sacrifice. And the third is, is meal that the, the third, the meal is actually the least important one. Um, and then I've had, you know, intense discussions about this and I've cut co- and I've come to the conclusion talking with other people that in fact the nuptial mass is the nuptial um, aspect of the mass is antecedent to the sacrifice precisely because the bridegroom sacrifices himself for the bride. It presumes that the nuptial aspect is already extant. So nuptial motif is first, um, then the bridegroom lays down his life for his bride. It isn't, I'm going to sacrifice myself and then there's going to be a nuptial dynamic. No, the nuptials first, then the sacrificial, and then obviously the meal. But then also just in terms of the meal motif, that's, that is, the nuptial is still so wrapped up with that because when, you, when the priest receives Holy Communion and when the faithful receive Holy Communion, that is an intensely nuptial act. You know, you're receiving our Lord's body into your body. Um, and then I found, I read a book by um, Brant Petra that that tied all of the, um, the, liturg- the, the motifs and the theology um, and the liturgical actions of the Eucharist back into the 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 Jewish traditions. And the, the, and this is mind blowing to me because everybody out there knows this and can relate to this. And this is such a cool thing to use to evangelize people because everybody knows about this. You know, when you go to a wedding and they do the thing where the bride and the groom take the piece of cake and feed each other the piece of cake. And now, you know, in the 20th century, it got to the the very crass, tacky thing where sometimes they smush the pe- the piece of cake in the in the spouse's face, and that's just that's awful and lame and trashy. They shouldn't do that. But this whole thing of feeding, taking taking a piece of food and feeding it to your spouse at the in in the context of a wedding. That that's a Jewish tradition. So when our and you know what they you know what the Jewish tradi- the wedding tradition was, they would take a piece of bread, and each spouse would hold up the piece of bread in front of the other spouse and say, "Take and eat this. This is my body," and then feed it to the spouse. It sounds like it would be probably a callback also to the manna as well. The yep. the, the bread from heaven. Yep, absolutely. So you've got you've got these incredible, incredible tie-ins that just keep pointing to that this isn't this isn't a trite potluck dinner collective meal that we're all having around this table. This is this is nuptial and with all of the depth and profundity that goes along with everything associated with with marriage and nuptial action. And then of course the sacrifice, which is you know, it's, it's Calvary. It's those two things together. And then the meal aspect is third. But of course, in the meal aspect, that's what's pushed in the Novus Ordo, because it's all about dumbing it down, Protestantizing it, don't want to scare people. And, you know, looking back on the RCIA, you can see exactly what they were doing with the RCIA curriculum. They were, they were assiduously avoiding saying 
anything that could potentially, quote unquote, scare off Protestants. So the real presence was not mentioned in the RCIA class until the Sunday before the Easter vigil, basically our last class session. They talked, they talked about the real presence, but it was, you know, one of the ladies got up and read verbatim off of a flyer. I mean, that was the passion with which the the real presence was was discussed in my RCIA class. And probably um, while people were coming back from a water and bathroom break, I would imagine. Oh, well, yeah. But and, talking, you know, it, talking yeah. about the, the connection to the, the nuptial um, significance of the mass, flipping it around for a minute, if, if you go to the traditional uh, nuptial service, this the the gospel for that mass i forget which evangelist it is i should know this off the top of my head but i know that the line in there that this is a great mystery the mystery mm-hmm. of the the coming together of man and woman because it's reflective of the mystery of christ in the church of course which and is how, the greater how, reality yeah. and how many times in talking to the apostles did christ refer to heaven as being a bright the feast of the bridegroom Oh, all the time, constantly, constantly, constantly. This nuptial language is all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the epistles, obviously. Um, and and yes, it's it's so profound. And you, and now you kind of understand why the attack on on marriage and family and this whole business of just casting. And this is very current because anti Pope Bergoglio is going great guns on this again. He just said something to the effect that, you know, if there's not, if there, if the spouses aren't experiencing sufficient emotional fulfillment or something like that, that that can be used as a basis for declaring nullity. It, it isn't just, it isn't just the scandal and the evil of giving people this, you know, get out of marriage free card that that they're doing and this is a straight up false prophet forerunner of the antichrist anti john the baptist attack 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 marriage and family but then what you realize it also is precisely because the the nuptial nature of the triune godhead in relation to the church when you attack when you attack marriage on the human level what you're doing is you're poisoning in the mind of men how they think about and how they how they relate to the greater reality which is the union of Christ to his church and so if if marriage in the human realm is being cast as this thing that can just be cast aside. And, you know, love fails. Remember he said that, he said that very early on, like in 2013 or 2014, love fails and and things like that, that there isn't this fidelity and there isn't this permanence. I, and I think that's probably the key. The notion of the permanence of nuptial bonds the permanence of nuptial bonds between a man and his wife, but now the permanence of the bond between our Lord and his church. He, our Lord is not quitting this marriage. 
And I think a lot of people, I think maybe some set of Acantis fall, kind of fall into maybe this sort of a mindset where our Lord has thrown up his hands and said, that's it. You all are so far gone. I'm done. I'm done. I'm giving, I'm, I'm just giving you up. I'm giving you up. It's over. Love failed. Oh, well. And no, well, we'll get back to no. them in a minute. That, that That's actually in my notes for, mm-hmm. for this discussion. But something else, thinking about this as well, I've got a friend who's a big fan of the, uh, you know what, I, I don't remember now what the traditional name of the book is. Is it Song of Songs or Song of Solomon? Canticle Sol- of Canticles. Okay, so I've, I've talked to him enough, I forget which one it is. But it, it is his favorite book of the Bible. He was, mm-hmm. I guess he used to preach that before he became Catholic, and it occurs to me that maybe that's how he was predisposed to become Catholic, this is, again, an analog of Christ in the church. It, it is one of those books that I've heard referred to as like, well, how does this fit with the rest of the Bible? It's almost sensual in the sense that it was uh, forbidden from reading for so long but because it, it was talking about the, the bride, the bridegroom coming together. Mm-hmm. That's what the church is. That's Jesus and the church. It makes more, It makes sense now that you think about it. Oh, of course, of course. And I have received emails from Jews telling me how crazy I am, that it's just it's just Jewish erotic love poetry. That's all it is. Like, no, no, it is not. It is it is exactly what you said. It is Christ and his church. And it is one once you understand and you put it in the right frame, and yeah, you can read it, and it's it's one of the most incredible things in scripture. And it's not very long. You can sit and read it. And then I mean, I I would have to think that it would be salutary for married couples to sit down and read it together and and let let the analogies, you know, let let their marriage be caught up and be, you know, part part of the greater reality of Christ and his church, because their marriage, of course, is in the church. It's within the context of the church. So um yeah, the the Canticle of Canticles is is absolutely awesome. And it's so sad because all these Protestants are looking at that. And I, I've absolutely heard Protestants you know, badmouth it because, you know, it, it talks about, and you know, everything's symbolic. Everything is, is, is symbolical. So, you know, it talks about, you know, my beloved and your, your two breasts, there's something about breasts, you know, and it's, and those are the two Testaments. That's the old Testament and the new Testament. So, you know, it's this beautiful poem, but it's also, you know, this incredibly deep symbolic thing. Um, I'll try to find, I've obviously, I used to have a book that was all about this. Um, and I'll try to, I'll try to find that and we'll put it in the show notes, but yeah, read, read about the canical of canicles. It's, um, it's, it's eye opening. And if you're married, especially, I, I don't think how that could do anything, but, but help your marriage. I've got to jump forward then because in the first part of this uh, podcast, I asked you one, what was one of the devotions or spiritual practices you had that sustained your faith while you were pre-Catholic. And you mentioned that you read two chapters of the Bible every night, mm-hmm. every day, no fail. Mm-hmm. Do you still do that? Or is this, no. you know, you're living out the, the joke slash unfortunate reality that Catholics don't read the Bible? Well, I do read the Bible because I go to mass almost every day. I go to well, daily okay, mass. Fine. So that's, I go, you're, re- you're, <laughs> reading the, you're reading, the, you're reading the, <laughs> the parts of the mass. Yes. And that's all drawn from the Bible. But 
there's still a plenary indulgence from reading the Bible 30 minutes a day. You could get seven of them a week. Yep, that's absolutely right. You're right, and I should. Um, yes, yes, super nerd. Yes, sir. <laughs> so now that now the um, the daily life devotions are um, adoration benediction. Yes, I get daily daily benediction. <laughs> um, rosary, obviously, um, and then and then mass. Yeah, and then I used to be I used to do. Um, three or four hours of the office, but that fell, that fell by the wayside, unfortunately, due to circumstances. But, and I, and I do miss that. I hope that there's, there will be a way that that can be rebooted again and doing it with like other people, not doing it by yourself. Cause it's, it's kind of tough to do by yourself. And it's, it's confusing if you don't know exactly how the, how the diurnal works and all of that. You're never quite sure if you're doing the right thing. Although having said that, I need to take my own good advice. It's all online now. Um, Divinium Officium is, it just, it just spits it all out at you, like pre-formatted every single day. So having said that, you don't even really have an excuse, but yes, I, maybe, maybe, Maybe things are happening that I'll be able to pray. Um, my favorite was Compline. It was fun to pray Compline before before having dinner or before turning in for the night. Um, Vespers and Lauds was always very nice as well. So, well, yeah, it's a it's a good good shot in the arm. And maybe some of the listeners out there can send me emails saying, you know, guilting me into, hey, Anne, you should start praying the hours again. Well, let me jump back in my notes then, because we we talked about you emailed the Diocese of Denver to figure out, hey, where is this uh, Latin Mass uh, extraordinary mm-hmm. form thing I heard about on the TV, on EWTN mm-hmm. and whatnot, and they pointed you in one direction. But you had access to the Internet, and I've got to wonder, did you stop once you found the, the local Mass there, which is Fraternity of St. Peter? I mean, there's there's not mm-hmm. that many of them in Denver, but it's not the only one. Um, did you keep looking or were you just were you happy when you found it and and part of the question here is because there is a mild multiplicity not that many i mean it's not as many as we'd like but uh there there are more than one there is more than one there is a multiplicity of latin masses in the general denver area and around the world as well so it's not just fraternity st peter there's institute of christ the king although not in denver there's the sspx i don't know if there are a set of a contest in denver did you look for any other possibilities once you found your latin mass or no no because it was it was you know i i I roughly knew, and I think we might have talked about this in in the last episode, because I went to K-State and I was driving back and forth quite a lot between Kansas City and Manhattan, Kansas. I drove through St. Mary's, Kansas all the time. And so if you drive through St. Mary's, you have you live anywhere around there, you know about the SSPX and then the SSPV and then, you know, the guy who elected himself Pope and sits on his front porch with his mother in a white cassock. And you, you've heard all these stories, you know, about that. Um, I didn't know any details or anything, obviously, but you knew about that. And then yes, there was kind of, they built on the East side of Denver. It's about, I don't know, it's about 10 miles outside of town. If you drive straight East on I-70 and sitting right there along I-70 is this 
big, beautiful, brand new church, classical architecture. It's a really beautiful church. And I had heard that, yeah, those are those, those are those Catholics who are, the word schism wasn't used. I don't know, separatists or something like that. Those are those separatist Catholics. And they decided that they were going to build themselves a church and they crowdfunded 10 million without even breaking a sweat and they built that thing and there was it was kind of that there was an admiration about it and it's what's it called it's called saint isidore saint isidore the farmer yes um yeah and there, there was an admiration because it's a beautiful church i mean they did well they had a good architect they did a good job of it um but there was also the sense that they were they were the separatists and understand that in the in the central US especially that the sep the what what let me use use that term just as a slang because that's kind of what was being bandied about the separatist catholics are kind of considered to be in the same category as like mennonites and amish and people like that because they dress similarly they um they kind of isolate and keep to themselves and things like that and there's that that whole kind of mystique that like the mennonites have that the sspxers have the good ones are like that and i, I say that completely completely tongue in cheek because it's a spectrum like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, and so I, I went to mass there or did I go to a wedding? I can't remember, but I, I know I went to a mass there because one of my clients and I mean, people, people drove down like from Wyoming every Sunday that, that St. Isidore's that church pulls people in from all over the place, from Nebraska, from Wyoming, all over Colorado, all over Western Kansas, people drive every Sunday to go to mass there. And so the place was just packed to the rafters. And one of my clients invited me and I did go to a mass there once. I didn't receive, but it was a, it was a, it was a beautiful mass. It's a beautiful church and the choir was good and the preaching was good. And, you know, it was, it was what it was, but no, there was never any question for me. It was just, no, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to the fraternity of St. Peter one in Denver. That's, that was no problem. Okay. So one of the other questions I have to ask, not only because it's semi germane to this conversation, but because we also got a lot of emails asking about this when, uh, months ago asked if, you know, who, who wants to ask questions for Anne for a just generalized ask Anne anything. And several questions came in, why not consider sedevacantism? And whether it, it doesn't really fit in this part of the, you know, the, the discussion per se, but maybe more now that you're at this point in your life where you, 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 you say that Benedict is still the Pope, well, you say that Francis isn't the Pope. And obviously right. you and I disagree on this point. And I, I, I think, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast or not, that when it comes to the question of Francis and Benedict, Honestly, Francis has done more to make me think the set of might have a point than anything <laughs> the set of have ever said. That said, I don't believe them. But obviously you had to have heard of these folks at some point along the way. Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts about them? Did anything make any sense about it? I mean, I, I, I will freely admit I do listen to a couple of the set of podcasts because they are like German philosophers in the sense that they do amazing scholarship on some things. Mm-hmm. They come to some of the wrong conclusions, but in mm-hmm. terms of their scholarship about pre-Vatican II uh, ecclesiology, they're really good. 
Yeah, they're a treasure trove of, you know, quotes, citations. There's a couple of pages on Novus Ordo Watch that I have bookmarked that if I need to look up a certain topic or find a certain find a certain quote on something, I know that they've got it over there because they've he does he does some extraordinarily thorough research. The answer um Again, I'm going to attribute it to grace, but I always had a profound sense that that wasn't right because our Lord's promises are 100% rock solid, and it doesn't make any sense that there would be no visible head of the church, and in fact, there would be an anti-pope masquerading as the visible head of the church without any counter to that um, for now, you know, at the time, 50 years, now 60 years, you know, they say it's 1958. So it just... No, our our Lord's promises are rock solid. That can't be right. Now, what happened after that is I started, I think I started making my very first videos and getting a little bit of, you know, exposure on the internet that wasn't just in the cattle industry. Because that's what barnhart.biz, that's what this website barnhart.biz, that's why it's called that. That's why the extension on it is .biz. That was my brokerage firm's website. The entire purpose of that website was it was the home-based website for my brokerage firm and on that blog, I was posting cattle and grain market commentary. That's what that was. And then it's it's just transformed into into what it is now, if I were going to, if I were starting this whole thing of whatever it is you want to call me that I am now, and I was starting this deal from scratch, obviously I would not name the website after myself. It would be, it, it would have some name of some sort. Probably only, in Latin and probably ending in .org. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so the reason why it's eponymous is because it was my it was my business it was my brokerage firm's website that's why that's there so i start making i figure out how to make videos and put them on youtube in 2010 and i did um you know i did a little talk about the word nice and the the word origin and what it actually means it means a person who doesn't know anything which i actually heard at a sermon at the denver sssp fssp parish um <laughs> At one point, one of the priests said to me, we have to be really careful about what we say in the homilies because we know that you're just listening to everything we say. And this could end up on the Internet somewhere like, well, that's kind of a good thing, isn't it? Um, and then um, what did I do? I did I did one on uh, I did an early one on Islam before I before I burned the Quran. So, you know, I'm I, I have a little bit more of a, of a growing, broader a diverse web presence at that point. I mean, it's nothing like what it is now, but, you know, a f a several thousand people, you know, five, 6,000 people regularly reading my, my site. And when I start, when that started to grow and there started to be, you know, Catholic things. Um, and then when I burned the Quran and it just went, it went crazy. I, I, I hate to say this, but some of the nastiest and like um, sexual hate mail that I got was from Sedevacantus. And as unpleasant as it is to say that, um, it was either, you know, sexual in nature, you know, you're just a whore, blah, 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 or um, Sedevacantus accusing me of being a Jew. 
So I, I can tell, I can tell by your hair. And if, if you're that smart and not married, you, mu- you must be a Jew. You must be a Jew in which I'm not. And at the time I was actually coloring my hair darker. So that is, that wasn't even my natural hair color. It was just, and, and the, the whole backhanded compliment of, you know, a, a woman who's that smart, who's that intelligent must be, must have Jewish blood in her. Well, that's kind of a weird backhanded compliment. I, I mean, what does one say to that? I don't know. Well, the there, are, there are non-Jewish women on the right hand of the bell curve as well. Yes, there are. Yes, there's, there certainly are. Um, oh, and by the way, that this completely tangentially, I sent you the link super nerd. I had been, you know, curious about doing one of the DNA tests and just, or having, you know, one of my male relatives or something do it and just see, it turns out I sent super nerd. We'll we'll put this in the show notes. This is such a tangent. This, this set of identical twins sent in their DNA to like five, the top five, um, ancestry companies. They got the results back showing completely different results. They were identical twins, which tells us what, that this is just all of this business of these ancestry websites it, or ancestry services. The results are probably made up and bogus. And it's just, it's a data collection. They're, they're collecting DNA samples. So no, not going to do any of that. Not going to recommend that anyone do any of that because there's no assurance whatsoever that the, that the results are going to be right. But wait, so Elizabeth Warren really is Native American? Well, she might be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. But yeah, I mean, I so I'm just getting all this hate mail and it's coming from and I start seeing that it's coming from Set of Acantus. And I don't know. It's you you have to take when you get evidence like that and you get a a large data set of evidence like that, which believe me, I was getting I was getting a hundred emails an hour for months after that Quran burning. It was just it was insane. Because I did the Quran burning and then about five or six months later, I did the shutting down of the brokerage and then that went super duper duper viral again. So I had a whole nother round. There was there was almost a year where I was getting something like a hundred emails an hour. And I would you know, I would glance at a lot of them and, you know, you would just see, you would see the timber and you would see where they were coming from. And I looked at this and I started making this connection and I'm sorry, but when you start seeing patterns like that of these people who are involved in set of acantism, who are just filled with this absolute rage, just rage at what some, some woman that they see on the internet who, who burned a Quran. I mean, why why shouldn't you be on board with that? And a lot of them were, well, you know, the the Muslims are being used as a scapegoat. It's all it's all a manufactured conspiracy of the Jews. And I was like, dude, are you are you are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And then it would get into the personal stuff, and you're just like, okay, there's something really really wrong here. Some there's a, there's a bad spirit here. I never thought about this before until we had this discussion a little bit earlier talking about the nature of, of the marriage and the, the relationship to the church. And it makes me wonder with regard to, you know, if you have ecclesiolo- ecclesiological dysfunction, mm-hmm. it almost comes across in a way that in a marriage you could have like sexual dysfunction in a sense. And, and that 
that things are well, I'm, I'm reading I'm, I'm just kind of extrapolating here I'm thinking out loud this could be completely wrong but in terms of you know instead of a contest they have a dysfunctional relationship to the church right and so what do you do in a situation like that um, get angry lash out be confused yeah. I don't know I mean I, I never well, really quite I mean, thought of it in that way until this conversation but it kind of makes sense uh, is it is it too extreme to say that the set of Acanthus position by definition implies an infidelity on the part on the part of our lord relative to his church because he's left because if you take the set of Acanus position what you're saying is that our lord has left his bride the church without a visible head for 60 years is isn't that wouldn't that can't that be described as an act of infidelity within this nuptial relationship. So yeah, of course, there would be a rage and a lashing out and a bitterness and a resentment there. And I, I, I know that's wrong. I absolutely know that that is wrong. The other grace that I had to lead me to understand that that was wrong is that, you know, as most people do, you, you pick up and you read books about exorcism and all that kind of stuff. You know, you say, well, let's see what if there are any interesting stories and, you know, how much of the exorcist was real and how much of these novels are real that we, that, you know, and these movies that we see about this. Short answer and, is the movies are fake and the, the real stuff is so scary. You really don't want to get into it. Yeah. The real stuff is probably, <laughs> You you would go bonkers if you if you saw what really goes on. Um, and in terms of being curious in a bad sense, do not be curious yeah. about what happens in an exorcism. Yep, there's we, a reason we, why very few priests and the few priests who do get to do exorcisms. It's not a matter of hey, cool, I get to do it. It's oh crap, no, I have to do it's this. It's oh crap. Yep, that's right. It 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 is an assignment you do not want. And it's the kind of thing that you do not want to get roped into it as a non-clerical helper in this weird crap happens. And yep. you can you can get physically and spiritually screwed up. Yep. Absolutely. Being associated with this. Don't be curious about it. Yep. So you read these books and you read all of these anecdotes and all of these stories. And, you know, a lot of the set of Acantists, they also say that the, the Novus Ordo rites of ordination are invalid. And so, I mean, they're, they're like some of them, a non-trivial percentage of them are saying that, you know, priests are not priests, including trad priests who are in the Ecclesia Dei communities. You know, and they're saying that because the bishop was invalidly ordained or something like that, you read these books about these exorcisms and, you know, the priest, a priest goes into an exorcism environment where a demon is manifesting, where the demon is actually speaking through, through a person. And, um, you know, we, we can know sometimes that that is all for real. Like when seven year old inner city black girls start speaking in grammatically perfect Latin and correcting, correcting the priest Latin and things like that. Okay. We know that we are dealing with the preternatural at that point. So these priests report, if they go in and they don't have 
all of the I's dotted and the T's crossed to have delegated authority from from the local Novus Ordo bishop to be there doing the exorcism that the priest has absolutely, there's nothing he can do. The, the demon is completely intransigent and is in fact sitting there mocking him for the fact that he has no authority. He goes back to the chancery. He gets whoever the bishop is even if the bishop is one of these complete pieces of crap that it could be mccarrick for all we care yeah it could be mccarrick any of them as soon as he has the delegated authority and the i is dotted and the t is crossed he can go back and the demon has to submit the demon has to submit to his authority because now he has the delegated authority from the bishop and the bishop's authority comes from christ so you there's lots of anecdotal evidence that proves that there is apostolic succession, you know, the the Novus Ordo Mass is valid. It's illicit. Most of them are illicit. Um, In fact, you can say that you could argue that all of them are, are illicit because the Novus Ordo was composed and created in malice by infiltrators in an attempt to, you know, implant a cancer inside the church, Protestantize the entire church, but it's a testament to the indefectibility of the church that even there in their attempt to do that, that the mass is still valid. It's also and, a know, testament to how satanic it is as well. And and if you look at the, you know, for example, the Ottaviani intervention, this is mm-hmm. this was done before the Novus Ordo Mass as we know it was even promulgated. This was done in sixty oh, eight. Yeah. So this oh, was yeah. assuming mass ad orientum in Latin and yeah. all of the, the theological destruction that comes around comes about as a result of the liturgy as it was written in the abstract, assuming the most reverent possible Novus Ordo that nobody yeah. on earth has ever seen because it was yeah, never that, done. Exactly. What Cardinal Ottaviani saw, what was presented and what they all lost their minds over, if if it were to be, if that mass were to be said in exactly the way that they said it, that caused Cardinal Ottaviani to lose his mind and draft this intervention, it would be today probably in the top 10 most liturgically conservative Novus Ordo masses celebrated anywhere in the world. So you've got, I mean, you've got a super high um, Novus Ordo Mass that's celebrated at the Brompton Oratory in London. You've got a super high Novus Ordo, I think, in Toronto. Um, and there's a few others throughout the world. That, that is what what Cardinal Ottaviani saw. He didn't see some um, guitar mass with bongos and dancing girls or anything like that. They saw the super duper 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 high version of the Novus Ordo, and they looked at that and they said, "This is this is this is impossible. This is Protestant. There's no way we can do this." No, they had they had no inkling at all that it was going to, not only that it was going to turn into bongo and guitar masses with dancing girls. But that it was going to happen within a matter of months and in some places weeks. I've received numerous emails from people over the years who told me that as of the first Sunday of Advent of 1969, which is when the Novus Ordo was promulgated, they said that it took approximately six weeks for it to degenerate into a hippie 
uh, guitar bongo mass. Six weeks. And unfortunately, they didn't wait for the official promulgation. And when I say they, a lot of parishes throughout North America, I've talked to people who in the uh, the mid-1960s, Vatican II was still going on. They were having English masses. They mm-hmm. did not yeah. wait for the for the official promulgation. And if you read um, Klaus Gomber's book, um, The Reform of the Roman Liturgy, I'll have to look up the exact title. I'll put it in the show notes. They were doing experimentations in, in the uh, the vernacular in the 1920s. Yeah. These people had all their plans locked and loaded, and they were not coming from the Holy Spirit. They were getting this from a different spirit. Yeah, exactly. It couldn't have happened as fast as it happened if it hadn't been meticulously pre-planned. Paul VI said the first mass in Italian in Rome in like 1965. And you can go to the church, there's a plaque or a, you know, a stone tablet inscription thing. And it says in Italian on this and such date, and I think it's 1965, I'd have to look it up. Pope Paul VI celebrated the mass for the first time in the Italian language, blah, blah, blah. So what's funny is that, you know, where they had this plaque originally placed, people came into the church and defaced it. And they had to move it. They had to put it like 20 feet up or something so that nobody could, in it could not, somebody, they had it like next to an altar, a side altar. And somebody literally crawled up onto an altar to deface this thing, celebrating the, the change of the mass into the vernacular. So they had to put it 20 feet up higher on the wall so that the people couldn't deface it. But that was, yeah, 65. And that's a papal mass. That's Paul VI doing it. So, um, yeah, it was all planned out. But yeah, that's that was the, it was never, set of acantism has just never been a temptation at all for me. And it I, I really do believe that it goes back to the, the nuptial nature of the relationship of our Lord to his church and the fact that our Lord is perfect good He's perfect, infinite good, which and means faithful. that they're and faithful, which means there is no breaking of promises. There's no being a jerk. There's no um, tricking anybody. There's no, um, you know, trying trying to do something cutesy to to see if if he can give you the shake or something like that. There's nothing like that. If he says this is my church and here is Peter and I will be with you and this thing is going to persist until I return in glory to judge the living and the dead, then baby, you take that to the bank, and that's just all there is to it. Amen. Yay! <laughs> we finally got around to talking about a set of on the podcast. <laughs> We're going to do, we'll do a full episode um, on that, but it's, it's such a huge topic. Do and we need to really? Well, I, I don't know if we need to. What else yeah, would we have to discuss that, that, that really isn't nailed down here? I mean, I think, I think that rant that I just made that, I that that's, call it a that's rant. my argument. Well, that that witness that I just gave or that testimony that I just gave, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, that's really all I have to say on it. And if if you want to argue that, if you want to argue that our Lord is a liar and does not hold his promises and that we shouldn't have faith in his promises and that we should, yes, assume that what he said has been reneged upon and that the the marriage is broken, so to speak, or that, you know, he's taken a break from the marriage, something like that. Um, 
or the Saint Robert Bellarmine answering a theoretical question is somehow applicable in 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 a way that he never intended it to be. Yeah, yeah. poor poor Bob. We love Bob. <laughs> Saint poor Bob. Bob. <laughs> Saint Bob. Bob. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> he gets well, he gets misused and abused. Yeah. Talking about saints and devotions. So mm. you said you st- at once you became Catholic and and started developing new devotions. You stopped reading the Bible. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> now, what were though that where I was going with this is what were the new devotions aside from the rosary that you did develop? I mean, you mentioned doing the divine office. What other new devotions um, did you develop after becoming Catholic? New devotions. Well, I mean, rosary's huge, and that that was kind of a toughie for me um, for for quite a while. In fact, for a couple of years, I would when I would pray the rosary. My my mind would race and I'd start thinking and I'd get off on some tangent and in my mind. And the next thing I knew, I had said, you know, 25 Hail Marys or something or or just or just stopped. And so for a long time, I used um, an audio file and, I you know, I had what were those little tiny um, Apple music things, the little tiny square. It was like iPod an inch. Nana. Oh no. Shuffle. The shuffle. I thought shuffle. Yeah. Something like that. I had one of those and I would use that just to keep me, keep me on track. And so then I was, I was kind of happy because I used to use audio aids that I, I recorded, um, a Latin rosary, the sorrowful mysteries. And I still, it's definitely high on my list of projects and things to do. And now that I have done da, 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 the new MacBook pro, thank you, Mr. Listener who sent that in. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. And I have this really good, um, Sennheiser headset that super nerd recommended to me. And I have that and I've got, you know, the ability now to, to record some pretty high quality stuff and get it uploaded onto my YouTube channel. A lot of people have said that they, they do use that over the years. And I understand that, especially when you first start or you convert in and you start praying the rosary, or maybe you're just, you know, a Catholic who's just, you're baptized Catholic, but you're just getting back into it or something like that. And you, you want that audio help praying the rosary. So I did that for years but then, I mean, I haven't used I haven't used an audio aid praying the rosary in goodness five six years now. Um, so, I mean, you just get the discipline, and you don't <laughs> you don't you don't wind up praying twenty five uh, twenty five Hail Marys or anything like that. Um, well, that's not the worst it. thing in the world. And in terms of, of praying the Hail Mary, that that is an incredible devotion in and of itself, and and. and yes. It's completely tangential to what we're talking about, but when when I was uh, engaged to my wife and we were going to the um, pre-marriage classes with, with the priest, one one of the comments he made was just in terms of, of company keeping. Uh, there there was an old phrase that says, "When a couple is together or is alone together, they're not praying Hail Marys." And mm-hmm. what we decided to do is when you know when when you whether you're driving someplace or something is to intentionally pray Hail Marys, and it's it's the kind of thing it's it's countercultural in the positive sense. Um, you can't fall into error when you're doing that in the sense of you know the the an idle mind or an idle hands is the devil's workshop. If mm-hmm. you find yourself with literally nothing to do and you're wondering what can you do, start saying Hail Marys. Seriously, mm-hmm. whether you wake up in the middle of the night for no reason that you can explain, start saying Hail Marys. And that is the, one of the surest ways. I mean, Mary and, and Satan cannot be in the same place at the same time. 
Satan yeah. cannot stand her presence. And if your default reaction when you don't know what else to do is to start praying to her and invoking Mary to be there with you or to help you, you will not fall into sin. St. Louis de yeah. Montfort was not a freak when he talked about this. That's right. And, you know, it's, you know, a bit of a sensitive topic, but I think, you know, obviously we talk about sensitive stuff all the time and we have an adult audience. Um, any problems that you have with purity, you just read over and over and over and you'll hear priests say this a lot is look, if you're, if, if you wake up in the middle of the night or if you're, you know, you've seen something on the internet that has now, you know, cultivated and fertilized bad thoughts, impure thoughts coming up in your mind, start saying Hail Marys or get out your rosary and start praying the rosary or just, just say Hail Marys. You don't even have to do it within the context formally of praying the entire rosary. That is one of the most powerful tools that you can use to maintain purity you know, of, of your thoughts and so on and so forth. And in this day and age, you know, pretty much everybody is, is bombarded and, and occasionally, at least occasionally, even women occasionally tempted by this. That is the, you read it, you hear priests say it, you, you flee to her and not only can she, she'll help you and, you know, quell any impure thoughts, but she's also the person to go to if you have seen something bad that you need to purify your memory. So the purification of memory, you can, you go to her, you ask her, and she can organize it with our Lord such that you can get horrible images that you've seen um, out of your mind or at least suppressed so that they're not like constantly coming up in your mind and, and, and uh, tempting and torturing you. And it isn't just even seeing necessarily pornographic things, but if you see like images of, uh, you know, satanic stuff or something like that, that's, that's really nasty and scary and, and just drills holes in your mind and you, you can get rid of that stuff. You or flee to her. Do it proactively because there's so much imagery that we don't understand how it affects us even. Yeah. And yeah. You know, talk about, you know, a portal straight into hell. You know, there are lots of good things you can do on the internet. Like, I don't know, recording a podcast and publishing it about topics like this, but even just being able to get on your computer, it's a realization. You were opening a portal to something that could destroy your soul if you are not mm -hmm. careful. So, I don't know, set a password on your computer like 3x Ave Maria exclamation point. And for all you IT nerds, that's long enough. You capitalize it correctly. You got a number, you got a symbol. That's a good password. And by the way, it reminds you, what do you need to do before you engage in the possibility of encountering the filth on the internet? That's right. How about say a couple of Hail Marys? Yep. And feel free to come up with your own permutation on that. But pray before you go into an occasion of sin. And again, it's another tangent, but... It was another one of these uh, sermons I heard once that talking about one of the, the, the differentiations between people who persist in the spiritual life and those who fail is those who do not pray during temptation or in temptation or slightly before it is logical to encounter temptation. Those are the people who fall. Okay, that's not exactly rocket science. If you are in the military because, you know, we're kind of like church militant. We talked about this on a recent podcast. If you're in the military and you walk into a situation where you know there might be a firefight and you don't take a weapon and you don't take body armor, what do you think is going to happen to you? Yeah. Don't and be that, dumb. <laughs> and if you're doing this in Afghanistan, all they can do is kill your body. 
you're doing this on the internet, they're killing your soul. Yep. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's definitely something to keep in mind. And then I think the question was other devotions. Well, you know, a big, big turning point in life. And it happened when I shut down my brokerage. It was, it was kind of funny. It was kind of a, it was almost a sense of relief. Cause I remember I shut down the brokerage. I got everybody liquidated. I got everything done. I no longer, you know, was tied to having, having to be at my desk in the morning. And the next morning, the first morning that I was no longer a commodity broker and I could go, I went and I started going to daily mass. And boy, I, I, looking back at that, that was definitely a pivot point when things really started to escalate and start, you know, you can really tell that things are happening and so forth. Um, was that going to daily mass? And now, I mean, once you start doing it, um, I, I don't think I would, I don't think I would accept any sort of a job position or lifestyle in which I could not go to daily mass. That's just during the week. That's just off the table. It's completely off the table. And it's in my after mass prayer petitions every single day. Um, keep, keep the church militant, visible, clearly visible to me and keep me within easy walking distance, walking distance of daily old mass. I don't want to be dependent upon any sort of having to have transportation. Um, I don't want to be limited by anything but the most extreme bad weather. I mean, if it's, you know, lightning, thunder, raining torrentially, um, I would not go out in that. But that's that's about it. I don't want any limitation whatsoever on that. Priority numero uno in terms of logistics and where you live and your life and your lifestyle and how you work and what time you work is going to daily mass. Because once once you start and I mean, you just can't go back. You can't you can't you cannot accept not being able to go to mass every day. So well, closely connected with that is frequent confession as well. And yes. that's not a spiritual hypochondriac kind of thing. It's in in terms of the, the we talked briefly before about exorcists and one of the advices that exorcists give to their um to their penitents and I read this I know this from reading uh, Gabriel Morris book from reading a few other books by exorcists just going to confession mm -hmm. go to confession go to confession go to confession the whole mm -hmm. point of that is to drive sin from you by definition the the, the demons cannot attach to you if you do not have the sin in you and you really are living in accordance with um, not opening yourself up to occasions of sin. If you really have that firm amendment, evil can't stick to you anymore. And mm -hmm. you can also go to the, to, to, to communion. You could receive the Holy Sacrament. So the two go together. And, exactly. And there's, there's a phrase that some of the listeners have recognized. Um, Go to confession before you need to go to confession so you don't have to go to confession. You don't have to go to confession. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. And, you know, unfortunately, and I do go to, um, you know, I, I jump around in terms of where I go to confession. I've mentioned this before. And, yes, I've had um, I've had 
frankly, not very good Novus Ordo priests say things like, um, you know, you, the, let's say it's been a week or less than a week and you're going to confession and your sins are not not mortal. Let's put it that way, you know. And have the priest tell you that, you know, you, you this is too frequent and you didn't really confess anything. And, you know, just take that with a grain of salt and make sure you get the absolution and, you know, just make a note that maybe if you can avoid him in the future, maybe you should. Uh, there's nothing wrong. There is nothing wrong with going frequently and there's nothing wrong with confessing non-mortal, catastrophic, lascivious sins. I mean, and that's kind of, you know, they almost seem put out. Um, The other thing is is that— In those cases, you can also confess retroactively things you have confessed before and not in a—what's the term for a spiritual hypochondria? Um, Scrupulosity. Yeah, not in a scrupulous sense where you're saying, I'm not sure I was forgiven for this, but if you've got some— I don't know, priest who's questioning your sincerity or saying or thinking you're you're confessing too much, say, I you know, in terms of having material to confess, I am still sorry for that sin previously where I ran some someone off the road. I don't know, I'm just making something up. Um something you're sorry about in the past that you don't intend to do again, but you can confess that stuff again. And also in terms of, of, of if you come across a priest who thinks, hey, you're not confessing sins and just wants to give you advice and not actually give you absolution, some of the more liberal priests can actually be influenced by saying, Father, it'd make me feel better if you said the following words, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Uh-huh. You don't have yeah. to be a priest to understand what the formula for absolution is, and sometimes it might come in handy. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, especially for people in this day and age, I think this happens a lot, is that, you know, perhaps years ago when you either first reverted or first converted into the church, you knew, you knew objectively that X, Y, or Z was a sin and you confessed it. But now years later, after reading, researching, praying, you know, deepening your faith, obviously, you realize with greater depth and clarity why that sin was a sin. And perhaps you realize that it was much, that that sin was much graver than you initially thought it was. And so that, that is okay. It's okay for you because that's the fruit of the first sorrowful mystery of the rosary, our Lord's agony in the garden, sorrow for sin. It's a very good thing for you as you, as you progress in your, in your life, in your faith, to look back at the sins of your youth or years ago or whatever it was, or even if it was last week, and you've read something or you've come to some realization and you, you have this sickening feeling that, oh, that was, that was way, way worse than I thought it was. Um, if you would like to go ahead and mention that briefly to our Lord in the context of the confessional, I don't think there's anything in the world wrong with that at all. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't realize how grave that was at the time I was just converting in or da, 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 da. Oh goodness. Yeah. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Um, 
sor- well, sorrow terms, for sin. In terms of, of that, it makes me think of that if you can do it, uh, go on a spiritual retreat every once in a while. Um, one, one of the aspects of, the, like, say, for example, an, an Ignatian spiritual retreat is you get to do a general confession. And that's mm-hmm. you, that's a complete purgation. It, that is not um, spiritual hypochondria. Why can't I remember that term? It, it's not hypochondria to, to reconfess everything since your last confession, since your last general confession, or for your whole life if you've never done one. It is sure. a way of recommitting. It's no more unfaithful to your belief in confession than than um, renewing your vows of marriage as to your wife. Would she yeah. think, hey, you didn't love me this whole time? No, yeah. you're you're renewing it. You're saying, I loved you before, I love you again, I would do it all over again, especially knowing all the all the everything that goes with it, because that that could be, you know, <laughs> as a Catholic, everything is, is it's not easy. You are married to the cross. And mm-hmm. and that is an act of love that Jesus is like, Yeah, I know it's hard. And it, maybe I didn't know that before, but even knowing it now, I would do it again out of love for you. And, you know, this is getting off topic from our notes. And I had in my notes uh, to ask you about uh, how your devotion to Peter has changed, but I think that's going to be an entire podcast to itself. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, Peter, the Peter. Uh, yeah, the Peter. Yeah. The Peter. Oh, yes. I, I talk to him every day. And luckily in the, in the church that I am able to go to mass at, most days, there's a very, very beautiful, beautiful statue of Peter. And, uh, yep, I'm, we talk, we talk a lot. So, uh, mostly, mostly me saying, help, help. Um, and I, I think he is, he's, he's, he's ever so slightly interested in the current situation. And, uh, uh, it's he's my bud and his brother is my is my confirmation name so <laughs> well it's all the, it's all a family deal you know in, in one of the the chapels where i go to mass frequently there's there's a statue of saint peter and he's carrying a, a sword and also in that that chapel is, is a a statue of saint ignatius and i'm thinking would the two of you please come back with your swords and set things straight well, there is some sort of a, uh, there was a vision, somebody in, in Rome, I think in the 19th century, had it's one of those um, those visionaries, had, it's some sort of a thing about St. Peter and Paul appearing in the sky over Rome with flaming swords and cleaning out the Vatican. And boy, that would, that would just be fantastic. But then, then I think, you know what, then we wouldn't have the opportunity to fight for Holy Mother Church and, you know, do what we need to do. That, that at the end of the day, a lot of people just don't understand why is our Lord letting this go on and on and on. And it's, it's because he loves us so much and we we human beings, we can only be truly happy when we are doing the right. And I mean, doing the right as in the right thing, truly doing the right thing. And sometimes that involves fighting, fighting, dying, being martyred, whatever it is for him and for Holy Mother Church. And so he allows these circumstances to, to happen and he allows himself, you know, to be to be abused and, and nailed to the cross and so on and so forth precisely so that we can do the right thing and show him how much we love him. And, you know, 
he, he died on the cross for us. Now it's our turn to climb up on the cross and show him how much we love him. And so that's why these things happen. And so, you yeah, know, it's, yes, it's, when- it's, it's so much a, a function of modern weakness. And I realize I just fell right into it. And not only the fact that I said St. Peter and the sword, it was actually Paul and the sword Paul, ne- next yeah, to yeah. uh, St. Ignatius. But in terms of saying Lord or St. Paul and, and St. Ignatius and St. Peter too, come back and fix things. We ought to be able to hear the, the voice of our Lord saying, um, the graces are there. The tools are there. Get off your ass mm-hmm. and do it because this is the, the gift to you. You yep. get to become an awesomely great, insanely awesome saint to steal yep. a term from Steve Jobs. The, the tools are there. Go do it. I yeah. would be depriving you of the opportunity to show your love for me if I did it for you. Exactly. Exactly. And it's sad because there's there's a lot of this spirit going around right now. Some of it's kind of the the Roger Benedict option. All of that is really getting into the zeitgeist about, no, what we need to be doing right now is, you know, running off into the hills and hiding and Oh, you're, you're missing, you're missing such an opportunity. I mean, what, what an incredible, there's never been anything like this in the 2000 year history of the church. And here we sit, here we sit. It's, you, you, you have to act, you have to do this. You cannot, you cannot pass this up. It's just, it's such a mark of favor and it's such an incredible mark of favor that we do not deserve. I mean, seriously, us, that's the thing. I just shake my head is that, you know, this stuff is going on and, you know, the work that I'm doing in terms, in terms of Bergoglio and all of that. And, you know, again, not wanting to give the store away and I can't, I can't say too much, but guys, things are seriously happening. And, you know, I, I was in a meeting, a conference with someone a couple of days ago or a few days ago, and we were just sitting there saying, you know, do you ever stop and think about it's, it's you and it's me who are, you know, sitting in the middle of this vortex and we're the people who are doing this stuff. And it's like, oh yeah, big time, all the time. Think about it all the time that, you know, there must be some sort of mistake that was made, you know, some sort of a wire got crossed and, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, Anne the cattle broker, you know, I'm the convert. I'm not surely, surely there's someone else who is supposed to be doing this stuff. And, you know, the person that I was talking with said exactly the same thing is, you know, it's just, it's just little old me. Are you sure that, that I'm, I'm the person who's supposed to be doing this? And I don't, don't ask questions. You just, just fight, fix bayonets and charge. That's all. That's my mindset right now. Fix bayonets and charge. I can't remember who the saint was or the, which ones they were, but it was like five, 700 years ago envied the saints of the latter times because they were going to have the opportunity for spiritual heroics that had never been seen before in times. And I don't think we're at the end of the world, but in terms of comparison to the middle ages, we are at a, we're at a, it's a, it's spiritually, it's a target rich environment. If you're not racking up all time high scores, there's something wrong. Yeah. And it's, it's such a dichotomy because, you know, in the middle ages, you look back at those people, their day-to-day life was so hard. I mean, especially relative to ours, we live in just, you know, I'm sorry, there's hot wanting running water and flush toilets, you know, and you can just walk outside your door and somebody will just throw as much food at you for very little money as you could, as you could ever want. Um, But on the other hand, 
you know, you, you couldn't walk, you couldn't walk 30, 40 yards down the street without tripping over a church where, where the mass was being offered and, you know, the, the office is being prayed all over the place. And, you know, those people in the middle ages, they had, they had the very hard life, but on the other hand, that the, the liturgical richness that they had was just incredible. And so here we are, we have all this material wealth and comfort and so forth. In fact, too much. And, um, but you, you have to just bend over backwards in order to get to an old mass. Certainly, you know, sometimes it's difficult to find a confessor, da, 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 especially, you know, in the Novus Ordo where like, (laughs) I remember the first time when it was time for me after being received into the church, the first time that I, you know, it was some matter of weeks and it was time for me to go to confession. And of course there's no regular confession times in a massive parish of, at the time it was 6,500 families Massive church, dirt start built in the year 2001. There's not a single confessional in the church. Confessions are, are you know, heard for 15 minutes on, on Saturday at 8 o'clock in the morning or something like that. But mostly it was, quote unquote, by appointment. So I send an email. And by the way, so much for anonymous confession if you have to make an appointment. So I send an email to the priest and saying, I would like to come in and and go to confession. And I get an email back that says, I suppose that I could fit you in next Thursday. And I, I'm not joking. From 12.07 to 12.15. And I was just like, all right, never mind. I'll figure something else out. That I mean, that's just ridiculous. I suppose I could fit you in from 12.07 to 12.15. That means go away. Don't bother me. And, you know, why, why complain? They, they, did the, they would do the marathon confessions on Good Friday. Isn't that good enough, you know? Well, and make uh, the analogy to that, you know, the, the, the priest as an ultra Christus and the image of, of Christ and the church as a marriage Think about that if you told your 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 spouse, I can fit you in for five minutes next Thursday. Yeah, And maybe right? once a year I can put a full day of work into it. Yeah. How well exactly. would that go? Uh, not too terribly well, I don't think. I, we're, uh. we're, we're Big Macking this topic. Um, <laughs> and we're also at like almost an hour and 40 uh. minutes, so. Well, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, if there if there are any other questions that come in, we could always do a we could always do a part three, I guess. Well, we uh, sort of telegraphed that because I, I had in my notes the whole you know how how did your devotion to Saint Peter and your your relationship with the Pope develop? And anybody who has listened to the podcast or read the blog knows that there's more to develop here. So I think there will be a part three to this, and it's yeah, you could just read the blog and figure it out. But uh, I think I. I think there could be some good good questions to this as well. But in the meantime, if you need the email address, if you've never heard of it before and you want to send feedback and or questions or comments, send that email to podcast at barnhart.biz. I'll be listening to emails from 1207 to 1212 next week. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Masses for Inns Benefactors are every single day and there's a requiem mass once a week i forgot to say that last time we did the 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 closeout on on the uh, the podcast please pray for these priests whether they're exorcists or not they are very high in satan's hit list pray for them 
please. Yeah. Uh, the podcast is uh, the Barnhart podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this or previous podcasts and would like to contribute something, please visit supernerdmedia.com for more details. Usually I would mention people by name, but this is one of these episodes where yeah. we are recording in advance. So thank you to all the people who have regular monthly subscriptions on PayPal. That means that things are paid for and I don't have to worry about it and, and uh, freeze up some other creativity as well to experiment with. Um, and talking about topics we're going to postpone in terms of formal developed discussions, I'll let you talk about Matthew 1720. The Matthew 1720 intention is my initiative um, with regards to this situation with the Pope and the anti-Pope. Um, the Matthew 1720 intention is full fasting twice a week and then daily prayer for A, that Bergoglio be publicly recognized as anti-Pope and removed and the whole thing be nullified. That Pope Benedict Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only Pope since April of 2005, that Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace, and eventually achieve the beatific vision, and that Pope Benedict Ratzinger repent of what he has done, die in a state of grace, and achieve the beatific vision, because, you know, getting both of them into heaven if we fail to do that, then there will be an aspect of failure in the whole thing. Um, if, if there's going to be any point to what Bergoglio has done, um, let the point of it be that we all pray for him, that he repent of it, and that he, he also can achieve the beatific vision. And I've made this point before, even if, 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 and we don't know, but if it does prove to be true that Jorge Bergoglio is in fact the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist, isn't it amazing to think that even the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist could repent and achieve the beatific vision and and in a sense be kind of like a, a bookend foil to Judas Iscariot. It doesn't have to it doesn't have to end with the damnation, I don't think. And if there's any priests out there who want to correct me on this, please do. But it seems to me that with God's mercy being infinite and with Jorge Bergoglio being a human being as he is, that even he could repent and be eligible, obviously, for um having his having his sins forgiven and achieving the beatific vision someday. So we have to pray for that. And I was reminded of that the last time I went to confession. We have to pray for all of these nefarious characters. Um, you know, the Caspers, the McCarricks, all of these guys that you just you're just that just put your teeth on edge. But we are absolutely obliged that to pray for these people, pray for them to go to confession, to repent of what they've done, um, and to die well. And after purgation, presumably, um, that they will achieve the beatific vision and that we will see them in heaven. Um, you can't be repulsed by that thought because remember when, when we see each other, when whoever's in heaven makes it to heaven is in the beatific vision. They are as God created them in, in that, um, that self self real the, the the state of perfection in the sense that God created them to be, you know, um, and so you can't be repulsed by the thought 
of men like that or, you know, enemies in your own life, you know, quote unquote ex-spouses, even though there probably isn't such a thing or, you know, ex, ex-boyfriends, ex-relationships, estranged parents, um, enemies at work, anything like that. You've got to get over that hurdle and you've got to really be consciously desirous of all of these people's um, salvation and of seeing them in heaven someday. And if you've never heard of this Matthew 1720 initiative, it's a reference to the verse, obviously, that this kind of evil can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. This was what Christ told the disciples who couldn't cast out a demon, that some of them require prayer and fasting. And we talked about exorcism earlier. It's in the exorcism ritual. You have to pray. You have to fast mm-hmm. before, as a priest before you take on an exorcism. So it, this is serious business. So, and and we're in serious times. So, you know, indeed cowboy up and let's go for it because you know, the, the reward is great as well. Let's do it folks. Until next time. I am super nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks guys. God bless. 